North Roanoke, we continue in our series this morning through the book of Jonah. If you're a, a guest this morning and have not been with us, we, we have been through the Minor Prophets. We, we preached sequentially through the Minor Prophets and we skipped Jonah because I wanted to be able to dive more deeply into the book of Jonah. It's, it's a bit of a, an unexpected book. We, we see in the Minor Prophets the promise of God's judgment, that God's judgment against sin and against sinners is certain, but also the certainty of God's salvation. And it's, it's almost as if there's a little bit of a paradox. How, how can both be true? And we understand the minor prophets give us uh, little morsels of fact sprinkled in there that cause us to know that we should be looking for and expecting Jesus to come. We even see that in Jonah because we have a prophet of God who's thrown overboard to certain death by pagans who want to be held innocent of his blood and on the third day he emerges on dry land and goes to Nineveh and preaches the gospel we we see we should be looking for someone like Jesus in the minor prophets but we especially see it in Jonah and what we see more so in Jonah than any of the other minor prophets I believe is this missionary heart of God that in the midst of books that talk about judgment and condemnation that is due against our sin, we see very clearly a picture of a God who wants to save, who delights to spare, who wants us to enjoy Him and to know Him and to be blessed by Him. And so we've been preaching through Jonah chapter 1 where Jonah runs from God's call and then Jonah chapter 2 where he has been thrown overboard and he's in the depths of the sea about to die and perhaps even dead and God raises him up and delivers him in the fish on the third day on the dry land and then he preaches the gospel to Nineveh in chapter 3 and the Ninevites are saved and God relents concerning the judgment and the fiery wrath that he had toward their sin and that should be the end of Jonah. In fact, in most of your children's Bibles, it is the end of Jonah. Nineveh, Nineveh repents, praise be the Lord, next book. But we have chapter 4. Would you consider with me the word of God, Jonah, chapter 4. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. It's not the ending that we get in our children's Bibles. But it did greatly displease Jonah, and he became angry. The word angry there literally means it burned to him. You ever been so mad you're burned up on the inside that it was burning to him? Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. The word discomfort there is literally the word evil. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm 
when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand and left hand as well as many animals? Would you pray with me? God, help us to see ourselves in this text. Holy Spirit of God, grace us with the humility in the next few moments to, to receive from you what it is that you would have us to see in ourselves. Help us not to listen to this message or to listen to the word of God in the way that Jonah listened to God. Holy Spirit, we give you permission to expose the areas of our heart that need to be challenged this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to give us a renewed appreciation for how gracious God is. Spirit of God, we give you permission to, to challenge us, to encourage us, and to catapult us forward for the sake of the advance of your gospel. God, we ask that this message would not just be another sermon that we would go and file away somewhere, but that it would begin to transform us individually and corporately. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul makes a shocking statement. He realizes that God's judgment is coming upon Jews who are rejecting the Messiah. And as you know, the Apostle Paul was ethnically a Jew, and it is breaking his heart that his brethren are going to perish because they are rejecting Jesus, the Messiah. He declares in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. To put it in layman's terms, Paul says, if I could go to hell so that these people could be delivered from hell and rescued by Jesus, that's what I would like to do. While Paul serves as an exemplary model for us of the motivation which should characterize every Christian, we should, we should want to die for the sake of the nations. We should be like Paul when we encounter lostness and sin all around us that deserves God's condemnation. We should be those who say, take me God and spare them. While Paul is a great example of the heart of a Christian and the heart of a missionary, Jonah perhaps demonstrates the polar opposite. He demonstrates to us the foolishness of trying to get in the way of God's compassion. And because he's trying to fight God every step of the way and fight God's mission every step of the way, we find a prophet who's angry. He's not enjoying the deliverance that God has given him in chapter 2. He's piping mad. And 
I don't know about you, but you don't have to live too long to be around churches and people and Christians who are, who are angry. We, of all people, don't need to be angry. We've, we've received the grace of God. And for us to enjoy what God has done in our life, we've got to get to the place where we understand that what we've been given is so that we can give it away. Even to those for whom we not, may not feel comfortable giving it away. So for us to enjoy God's grace, to not be the angry Christian, but the Christian who delights in the fact that God rescued us from the bottom of the sea, to enjoy God's grace, we must not angrily limit His grace to those we are comfortable with God saving. Secondly, we must not have more regard for earthly comforts than the eternal destiny of others. And finally, we must not fight against God's will to save. If we're going to enjoy God's grace first, we must not angrily limit God's grace to those that we are comfortable with God saving. In the previous verse, at the end of chapter 3, we discover that an entire city has been spared the judgment of God's burning anger against sin. But in verses 2 and 3, Jonah doesn't see this as a reason to celebrate God's compassion, but rather to question it. He says, didn't I try to stop you, God? Isn't this what I told you would happen? Jonah tells us in chapter 4 what was really going on in chapter 1. He apparently had an argument with God. God's word comes to Jonah and Jonah says, well, I got a word for you, God. I know what you're going to do. And Jonah dares, he has the audacity to put his word against God's word. To put his appraisal of the Ninevites against God's appraisal of the Ninevites. To question a God who would go on mission to a wicked people. So he tried to stop it by fleeing to Tarshish. But neither God's prophet nor God's church can stop the God who controls the fish, the plant, the worm, and the wind. Jonah, notice in verse 2, it says he prays. The word prayer is used for the second time in the book. The first time he prayed was back in chapter 2 when he prayed for God to deliver him. But now, how ironic, Jonah prays that God would rethink his position on Nineveh and that he would condemn them. So he's happy to pray for his own salvation, but he's praying for the Ninevites' condemnation. Verse 1, the word anger means to burn. Jonah is steamed. He's piping mad. He's hotter than a major league manager tossing second base into the outfield after a blown call that cost him the World Series. He's hot. The words greatly displeased Jonah literally mean it was evil to Jonah, a great evil. Do you catch the irony? In verse 8 of chapter 3, the Ninevites turn from their evil, which the prophet of God thinks is evil. This is crazy. Jonah is burning mad because the Ninevites escaped God's burning wrath. This passage is dripping with irony. Jonah is seething with anger because God is slow to anger. It's a part of who he is. It's in his very name, his very character. Philip Carey writes it this way, Jonah's wrath burns hot enough that he's ready to sit in judgment over the judge of the universe. He's questioning God. And his question to God, though rhetorical, is written in the Hebrew with the expectation that God is going to say, you know what, Jonah, you're right. 
I don't know what I was doing when I sent you there to save those Ninevites. Jonah invites, through this dripping irony, a comparison of Jonah to God. He wants us to see how silly we look when we who have known God's grace want to deny his blessings to others, even those who have spent their entire lives seeking our harm. Nineveh wanted to destroy Israel. It's not like God sent Jonah to an easy place. Verses 2 and 3, it's difficult to think of a way that Jonah's prayer could have been any more self-centered. I don't know if there's another more self-centered prayer in Scripture than the one we find in verses 2 and 3. He uses the words my and I eight times in two verses. Wasn't this what I said while I was in my country? I fled because I knew your compassion. So take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. All right, Jonah, we get it. Jonah has the audacity to expect God to agree with him. He thinks he has a legitimate beef with God. And he even quotes back to God what God's name is as recorded in Exodus 36, 7 and 8. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Jonah leaves that part off almost as if to say to God, did you forget about your justice, God? But Israel is familiar with the forgiveness of God, is she not? Moses quotes from this very passage in Numbers 14 when he intercedes for the Israelites after they've rebelled in the desert and he says, forgive the iniquity of this people, how and why, according to the greatness of your loving kindness. In the Psalter, we read over and over and over again the proclamation that God is gracious and merciful, that he has covenant mercy toward his people. But the Ninevites had been the enemies of Israel, and they would eventually, by the way, overtake Israel. Eventually, the Ninevites would go back to their old ways, and they would be the capital city of the country that overthrew Israel, the northern kingdom. Now let me ask you a question. If God was going to show his compassion to our enemies, if he was going to send us to our enemies to proclaim his gospel and his deliverance to a people who might one day give birth to other people who would then overthrow us, would we still be willing to go? Or would we begin to think that somehow we deserve the grace that we've received from God? That somehow, because of what the future holds, that we've got to renege on what God is calling us to do right now. Are we willing to go to the hard places regardless of the results? Or do somehow we believe that the people to whom God is sending us just don't deserve God's grace as much as we did? Which, by the way, how many of us deserved it at all? None of us. It's, it's all of God. Now, Philip Carey offers an important clarification here. We've got to be clear where Jonah goes wrong. It's not as if we should never desire God's justice. It is good when the oppressor is toppled. It is good when the terrorist is caught and the torturer enjoys no impunity. The danger is that instead of rejoicing at the vindication of the afflicted, instead we self-righteously identify ourselves as the afflicted. 
and the victimized. The danger here is the victim mentality that we deserve God to pay attention to our needs and to take care of us, but those other people not so much. When this happens in our imaginations, the Lord becomes a weapon in our own campaign to destroy our enemies, an instrument for our own vengefulness rather than God being the judge that he already is. So let me ask you a question, North Roanoke. Who are the people that it would make you frustrated to see God bless? Maybe it's a former boss. Maybe it's a former spouse. Maybe it's a colleague who got the promotion that you didn't get. What about the rapist? What about the murderer? The petty thief, the loiterer? What about the black man? What about the white woman? What about an illegal immigrant? Or a Muslim terrorist? The question Jonah poses for us in this text is, did Christ come for sinners of all types, or did he just come for respectable sinners? Did he come just to certify the good people with a little bit of a Jesus badge on their shirt, put a little fish on there and feel good about life? Or did God really leave heaven not just to rescue us, but to rescue the most vile and the wicked and depraved in the world and to use us as a part of getting his gospel there? We are no different from Jonah when we try to limit God's salvation to our own pre-approved categories of who's good enough to get the gospel and who's not. Jesus is not only sending us to all nations, North Roanoke. He's sending us, especially to our own enemies, foreign and domestic, and maybe even some in, inside the family. And he's sending us to our enemies for the sake of his great name. We must not angrily limit, we must not self-righteously limit God's grace to a group of people that happens to look and behave and act just like us. His grace is far wider than that. It's red and yellow, black and white, every socioeconomic strata. It's the people that you would otherwise despise. It's the people that when you read that post on Facebook that you want to share that makes fun of our brown-skinned brethren or our Muslim brothers in Christ, that we want to say, that's right, you go get them. Instead, we hesitate and we don't post it because we recognize that God died for them too and we instead pray, God, get the gospel to people like that that they might know and enjoy your wide and amazing mercy and grace and compassion. Secondly, we must not have more regard for earthly comforts or preferences than we do for the eternal destiny of others. God responds to Jonah's prayer. Do you notice God, God, God talks back? Jonah asks this rhetorical question, and God asks a rhetorical question of his own. Is it good for you to be angry? God introduces the concept of goodness, of moral uprightness. Is it right? Do you really, Jonah, think you have the moral high ground in this argument that you've just started? And this is the question that God asks each of us who only want the comforts of being God's children with none of the challenges that come with his great commission. To those of us who became Christians just so we could have a nice life, but didn't want to have anything to do with the advance of the gospel to the nations, God asks this question, is it good for you to be angry? 
But Jonah doesn't get the memo in verse 5. He doesn't turn from his anger. Instead, he doubles down on his anger. He leaves Nineveh. He goes east to wait for God to figure out his mistake and finally burn up Nineveh. He actually has the audacity to leave the city, go east of the city, put out a camping chair, and say, well, I'll see what you're going to do, God. You're going to take care of those Ninevites. I know you're going to come around to the way I see this, God. In the Bible, east is the direction of the disobedient. Adam and Eve go east out of the garden. After killing Abel, Cain goes further east toward Nod. As they go to the Tower of Babel, they go east. Now Jonah moves east of Nineveh, and by telling us that tiny little detail that he's moving east, Jonah has the humility in retrospect to say to us, I am among the most disobedient people in Old Testament history. Jonah puts himself right there among some of the most disobedient people in the Old Testament. Such a successful prophet and yet such a heart so far from God. You know, you know what a challenge in the church is today? We've moved, we've moved east of the city. We've moved east. Saying, God, why don't you make us comfortable because we already belong to you and we'll just wait for you to come in judgment of our enemies. Now, is that not partially what we're saying when we look at the news, when we hear the bad reports, when we say the world is disintegrating all around us and we say, well, I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. Now, to be sure, we should long for Jesus to come back. We should long for the day that he makes things right. But we shouldn't long for Jesus to come back because... He's just going to topple all the bad people. We should long for Jesus to come back. Yes, because we'll be with him. We long to be with him and to enjoy him and his goodness and his praise and fellowship with our Savior face to face. But until that day, there should be a part of us that says, God, give me some more opportunities to get this gospel to my enemies so that they won't face your judgment, but they will come to know your great compassion and your great care for them. Jonah waits for God to burn up Nineveh, but God brings the heat to Jonah in verses 6 through 8. God appoints a plant to deliver Jonah from his calamity in verse 6. The word calamity there or discomfort means evil. In other words, God sends the plant for two reasons. First, so that he would have shade from the sun and he would be out of the heat of the sun. But more importantly and more significantly, God wants to deliver Jonah from the evil within his heart. Jonah may not like God's compassion toward Nineveh, but he sure does like God's shade. In an instant, he moves from great displeasure, verse 1, do you see that? It was a great evil to him, to great or exceeding joy in verse 6. This transition in Jonah's life doesn't come because Nineveh's been saved. It comes because he finally has some shade. In the Bible... Shade symbolizes both God's grace, as it does in Hosea 14, chapter 14, verse 7. And it symbolizes the places where Israelites so often practiced idolatry, as it does in Hosea chapter 4, verse 13. So get this. Down through the centuries, God's shade symbolized to the Israelites grace and protection from the wrath they deserved. But rather than going up on the mountains under the shade trees to worship God, what did they do there? They practiced idolatry. 
They made an idol of the very blessing that God provided for them. And this is exactly what Jonah has done. He said, God, as long as you're for me and just for me, I'm all about that kind of Christianity. But when you're about not just rescuing me, but using me to show others about how great you are, time out, God. So often... We take God's blessings and we worship them rather than the God who gives the blessings. And when God sends a worm to attack the plant, God is preparing to share Jonah, show Jonah something about his own heart. The word for attack here is, an, is a military term. It's a term of battle. God attacks the plant that he appointed to grow. I wonder, North Roanoke Baptist Church, how often we assume that we are under enemy attack when in truth, God is simply getting our attention. He's prying us away from our reliance upon earthly comforts that can prevent us from joining in God's mission. After sending the worm, God sends the east wind to finish the job. Philip Carey writes in the Bible, east wind is bad news. In Genesis 41.6, the east wind brings famine. In Exodus 10.33, the east wind brings the eighth plague of locusts to the Egyptians. In Psalm 43.7, God shatters the ships of Tarshish with an east wind. Which is interesting, is it not? Because God sends a wind to Jonah and he's on a ship that's going where? To Tarshish. So it very well may be the second time that Jonah has confronted God's east wind. When often God sends an east wind against pagans who are idolaters. And when God sends the east wind against Jonah, his prophet, here's what God is saying. Jonah's no better than Gentiles whom God has judged with an east wind. He has made an, idol, an idol of the blessings that co often come with God rather than being a worshiper of God no matter what circumstance he finds himself in. Jonah doesn't hide his frustration or his selfishness when he was fainting away in the sea he looked to God and prayed for life now he looks to his own soul because he knows God's not going to help him to die and he begs his own soul to die here's what Jonah says if God's sovereign plan doesn't guarantee my immediate comfort and certify my preferences and my agenda then I'd just rather die and in verse 9 God speaks again is it good for you to burn on the account of the plant? Same question. Is it right? Is it morally right? Do you really think it's good for Jonah to be so self-absorbed that you are stirred to the core? Have compassion, verse 10, over a measly plant while you burn with anger over the repentance of the Ninevites? Don't you see, Jonah, don't you see, North Roanoke Baptist Church, it is good for God to act consistent with his character and to long to spare sinners. It is good for him to value people more than plants. It is good for God to value souls more than shade. But Jonah just keeps it up. He justifies his anger. It is good for me to be angry, even to death. Jonah fails to see the disconnect between wishing God's judgment upon others and wishing it removed from himself. Are we ever like Jonah? Are we ever like Jonah? The pastor 
who is bitter because of the success of a nearby church stands with Jonah. The church member who scoffs at international missions because there are too many needs at home stands with Jonah. The Christian who turns up his nose at a waitress covered in tattoos stands with Jonah. The church with a strategy for reaching the well-to-do but none for the down and out stands with Jonah. Jonah wants us to know that truly wanting to reach our enemies means being willing to be inconvenienced for them. He wants us to see it is especially wrong for someone rescued by God's grace to deny it to another. And he wants us, North Roanoke, to be willing to let go of what makes us comfortable for the sake of our enemies. What does this mean in the life of a church? It means that we need to be willing to let go if God should call us to let go of the way it's always been done just because that's the way it's always been done. It means that when you come to a budgeting process you don't say well what did we do last year let's just do it again this year because that's what we've always done. What we've always done is comfortable but it doesn't mean it's effective, right? And so Jonah, we can be like Jonah when we say everything we're doing as we've been doing it throughout time immemorial is exactly perfect. God, don't move my cheese. Don't ask me to serve in a different committee or ask me to do anything different than I've ever done. In those moments when change comes and the purpose is getting the gospel more effectively out to our neighbors and to the nations and we recoil, we rebuff because that's not what we've done, that's not what I like, we are being just like Jonah. What are you holding on to this morning that's keeping you back from joining in God's mission. What's your plan? What's your shade? Finally, we must not fight against God's will to save. Very quickly, Jonah has been arguing with God for the whole chapter. But in verses 10 and 11, God clarifies Jonah's sin and leaves him speechless. The book of Jonah begins and ends with God's word to Jonah. It's as if they enter a courtroom. Jonah makes his case, but after God speaks, there's nothing left to say. None of his arguments will work. No argument will stand against God's saving mission. God always gets the last word. God's desire to rescue those who are perishing, even the most wicked among us, is a good desire because he has purposed to send his son and for his son to be glorified through the transformation of lives, through the receiving, receiving of God's grace in the lives of those that we would otherwise overlook. These people are of greater value to God than our personal comfort is to us. Jonah is still regretting, in verse 10, the loss of the plant. God says, you're still thinking about the plant. You didn't do anything to create that plant, the shade that came from the plant. You didn't build it. You didn't grow it. I put it there. It's just like God's grace. We don't deserve or create God's grace. And yet here Jonah is still lamenting the plant when an entire city has been spared. And God tells us in verse 11 that he has a particular interest in sparing people who don't know their right 
from their left. What does that mean? It means they have little moral understanding. They've had little opportunity to even hear the name of Jesus or to know about the fact that God came in human flesh to die for them. And there are approximately 3 billion people this morning on planet Earth who still have little to no access to the gospel. And God is using men and women like you and me to give and to go so that those people will know those who still don't even know the gospel, that they will know that God loves them. He is compassionate and he delights to turn and relent from the calamity they deserve when they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, the Messiah. God silences Jonah. And Jonah's silence speaks volumes. What is or are the idols of comfort in your life? Who are the enemies that God is sending you to? We often can hear a message like this and say, well, I don't know what to do about that. You know what you can do about that? Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 is still true. Salvation is from the Lord. The mercies of God are new every morning. So wherever you are, wherever you've been, today is the day of salvation. Some of you say, well, I'm already saved, but I just, I haven't been in, engaged in the mission. And, and God's leading me to see that there's more that can be done that he wants to use me to do. You can come and pray. For others of you, your, your guests this morning, you say, I want to be a part of a church that, that wants to spend itself for the sake of the cause of Christ being known among the nations. We invite you to partner with us and to join with us in that mission. And others of you, you're where Nineveh was when the gospel came. You're stuck in sin, deserving of the judgment and the burning anger of God, but you've just discovered that we serve a God who delights to turn away from his wrath and extend to you his great grace when you leave behind your sin and begin to live only for him. If that's what you need to do this morning, we invite you to come. As Jake and Kim come and play for us, we're going to have a hymn of invitation or a song of invitation. That simply means this. If you need to sit where you are and worship God, sing to God who is mighty to save. If you need to come and join this church this morning, sing to God who's mighty to save as you walk forward and then tell us we want to partner with you in the great commission until Christ comes again. So wherever you are this morning, whatever God's doing in your life, we invite you to come. Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you that you act consistent with your character. That when your word comes to us in power, when your Holy Spirit breaks into our, the chambers of our heart and we begin to hear of our great need for Christ in the gospel, that we, we don't have to wonder if you will save us. We don't have to doubt or question. We can just run to you. So we thank you, God, for your so great a salvation, that you're a God who operates consistent with your character, that you are entirely trustworthy, that you've given us your word, that we can place our faith in you and know that we've been changed, that we've been saved and rescued. 
And God, there's a world out there, many of whom are directly opposed to us, and they need that same gospel. Could it be that you've left us here specifically for our own enemies who've yet to hear and turn and repent? God, we pray that you would use North Roanoke Baptist Church to be a part of your saving mission and plan to the ends of the earth. Hear us as we sing about how mighty you are to save. Amen.